From the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, presented by a Cloud Guru, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Big day on the show, Aaron. Uh, good to have you on. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, Brian, are you recovered from Krispy Kreme? We, get, we kind of have to do a quick recap. Well, we will. But before we get to that, man, uh, today's a big day. Today's your birthday. Happy birthday. Oh, I thought I didn't think we were going to actually cover that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Today <laughs> another, is my birthday. Another, another year um, of 29. Depending on when you listen to this. Yeah, so exactly. 29 again. No, um, man, I feel old today. Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. Well, in a semi-related, right? So if I go back to the Krispy Kreme challenge that, you know, raising the the money for the children's hospital, I was actually thinking about this the other day. This year I ran the race cold and I'm, I I swear I'm still sore from, you know, running five miles with no training whatsoever. And I did it last year and I was like, huh, is this a trend as I'm kind of moving into my old age here? And then when we did start this podcast, like thinking back, I was either, it was either the first year we did this or the second year we did this was back when I was like, like I was running half marathons and and 10 mile races and I was in really good shape and I was you know really happy with my physical fitness these days not so much yeah um. <laughs> there you go man something to something to aim for something to work towards but, so. but I can say this so you know those that have been listing uh, a couple of shows ago we kind of did the uh, the rock report um I can I can say for my birthday I did get uh, journey and Def leopard uh, tickets so uh, there's a upside all of this yeah good, absolutely good good, good. <laughs> Well, listen. Why don't we do? A, we got a little bit. We got a little bit. Of, we got a little bit of house cleaning. Yeah, a little bit of housekeeping, and then uh, we'll get to our guest. What was the the, the grand total? It was uh, close to four thousand dollars, correct? Yeah, just. I think we we finished at thirty eight fifty five, so just a hair under four thousand. So uh, thank you to everybody who donated. Uh, another uh, Cloudcast community was was first in community again this year. So thank you very much. Six years in a row, we, we've said it over and over again. Can't thank everybody enough for uh, for being so generous. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the grand total uh, for the last couple of years is twenty. Seven thousand dollars, yep. uh, kind of lifetime yep. right now, and so we're really looking forward to uh, to kind of breaking the the thirty k mark next year as well. Can't yeah, wait. That's right. That's right. The other thing we uh, we've got some some new things for the for the audience. Yeah, absolutely. So our our uh, sponsor for for the show, A Cloud Guru, was was really great. They reached out to us recently and, and said, "Hey, you know, we've got some new offerings. We'd we'd love for y'all to just kind of tell everyone about." And so I don't know that we we even talked about it up until now, but it has actually has been out for a little bit. The uh, A-Cloud Guru up until recently was, you know, b- purchase the courses and, and kind of pay as you go. And they've developed a membership yep. now as well. And there's a free trial for the membership. And then there's a monthly payment or, or a yearly payment. And um, if you were an existing customer and bought some of those courses, those courses are still there. But the membership gets you really great benefits. It's a, a bit of an all-you-can-eat model. All the training you could ever want um, for, for one monthly cost. And I just think it's a We've, we helped them out with a lot of this. We gave some early feedback on it, and it's just a fantastic program. Super excited about it. Yeah, so definitely uh, go check it out if you're interested, if you're trying to learn some new stuff. Um, all the details are in the show notes, as they always are. They'll be they'll be updating stuff as we go along, kind of quarterly as well. So always going to be a little bit of free stuff, always going to be some discounted stuff, but uh, you know, continue to, to love working with those guys. Listen, man, we, um, we always say that one of our favorite topics, uh, one of our favorite types of guests, types of topics is to get a chance to talk to the 
to the venture community. So today, uh, very excited to have kind of a, a longtime friend that we've just never had on the show before. So delighted, excited to have uh, Lenny Proust. Lenny, uh, who comes to us from Amplify, Par- uh, Amplify Partners, partner at Amplify Partners. Lenny, uh, welcome to the show. Glad to have you on. And we've uh, we've finally gotten over all our little technical hurdles. So great to have you on the show. That's right, guys. It's, I feel like it's a long time coming. So excited to be here. And uh, Aaron, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Thank you. No, and, and thanks for being on the show. Yeah, like Brian said, it was one of those, uh, you, you, your name popped up for this thing. I'm like, we haven't talked to Lenny yet? Really? Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hopefully it won't disappoint. No, no. So listen, um, you know, we've, we've known you for a while. We've had a lot of conversations about, you know, where's the future going and, and what's this technology? But for anybody who uh, has never met you, doesn't know you, um, give us a little bit of your background, um, you know, both pre-venture capital and then how you got into the into the venture capital game. Yeah. So to go pre-venture capital, I got I to gotta take you way back because I've been doing this most of my adult life. I was actually born in the former Soviet Union, moved to the Bay Area with my parents at the age of three. Both my parents uh, were trained engineers, industrial and mechanical. And of course, as a rite of passage, I went to UC Berkeley and enrolled as a CS major. And that's kind of where the story takes a turn. Um, it took me about a semester and a half to realize that, man, I'm just not cut out for this. I'm a, I'm a pretty, I stink as an engineer. And going down that path would be a career limiting move, as they say. But the benefit of being in the CS program is I met some brilliant people and it exposed me to you know, the, the possibilities in the world of technology and more specifically the startup world. And so from a from a pretty early age, I want I knew I wanted to be uh, in technology, just probably not the right person to be building it. And I'd heard about this thing called venture. Um, it, it seemed to be a pretty interesting path. It really catered to my ADD and would give me an opportunity to, you know, to work with folks much, much more talented than I. And so close to right after college, I was able to land a gig with the folks at RRE Ventures out in New York. And they were looking for an associate to join and run around New York and turf up some really cool opportunities. Problem was I, I landed in New York right in January of 2010. And at that time, you know, the 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 scene that the startup scene was really a buzz with things like Foursquare and Tumblr and social and mobile. And for whatever reason, I just I couldn't grok those 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 apps, those technologies. They didn't really resonate with me. But as it so happened, you know, this thing called the cloud was really emerging and there were some other interesting trends around DevOps and cloud uh, and uh, big data analytics. And so that gave me an opportunity to kind of jump in uh, and jump down the rabbit hole and see what all those things were about. And as, as it so happened, there just weren't a lot of folks in New York focusing on those industries. Uh, and one of the first companies I met and actually had the had the privilege of investing in was a company that has been on your guys' show a few times called Datadog. Yeah, um, love those and guys. And so, you know, you talk about, you talk about beginner's luck. Um, that's, you know, kind of case in point right there. And so venture is this interesting career where, you know, it's sort of self-fulfilling in some ways where you invest in a company, you build a network, you become associated with that company, you build a big, bigger network and that leads to new interesting opportunities. And so I was able to, you know, I was able to emerge as one of a, a few guys that was focusing on these on these enterprise uh, B2B markets in New York. The, the next problem that happened was I found myself spending more than 50% of my time on a plane traveling out to the West Coast. And being that I was from the West Coast, I decided to to move back and was fortunate enough to join the folks at Redpoint in the early stage enterprise team, which is, I think, where, where we first met and our paths crossed, particularly mm-hmm. around it. all the stuff that was happening in the container world and uh, with the CNCF. And then more recently, jumping ahead, uh, just about a year ago, I joined Amplify. And the story there is I'd actually known Sunil Dhaliwal, who founded Amplify on the board of Datadog. He, he made that investment when he was still at a fund called Battery Ventures. We kept in close touch, and I was sort of blown away by the work in the firm that he was building with Mike Dauber and David 
fire. And, you know, I, I think if there was a firm that encapsulated my industry focus, my approach with entrepreneurs and how I saw the role of VC, it was really those guys. So about a year ago, I made the leap. And so now I'm a partner with Amplify. And at the simplest level, we're an early stage venture fund. We back highly technical teams solving complex problems across distributed systems and infrastructure, developer tools, uh, the emergent ML AI stack and applied AI and, and security. So that's that's sort of the, the who, but I think the the, the why is, is relevant here. So if you guys don't mind, we'd love to touch on you know, why Amplify exists, uh, because I think it's, it's, it's important. So Amplify was really founded based on two realizations that Sunil had circa 2011 and 12. And I think this will resonate with you guys. And the first observation was that the background of entrepreneurs who were attacking traditional enterprise B2B markets had changed pretty dramatically starting around that, that time. You know, whereas before we saw folks from product uh, product centric organizations like Sun and Oracle and Cisco that had been really building technology for end users. At that time, we started to see people from Google and Twitter and Facebook or even directly from academia. And those folks were incredibly talented engineers, but they really didn't know what it mean what it meant to build technology that was going to be consumed by the outside world. You know, and often those those are the folks those folks didn't even know what what a sales guy looked like, how to hire a team. So while this class of founder was in te- incredibly technically talented, they had a lot less fluency around company building. Uh, the second and I'd say and the, the second observation was really that starting around 2010-11, the uh, industry the venture industry started to to take a, the shape of a barbell. And what I mean by that is there was an explosion of seed funds who would put in you know write small checks for small ownership in a lot of different uh, opportunities and take really kind of an index approach to investing in startups and traditional early stage funds that were you know call it 200 300 million ballooned up and raised 500 million if not a billion dollar funds. And simple venture economics dictate that those funds simply needed to put more capital to work and in those funds partner time generally follows money. And so you had this phenomenon where you had this class of uh, really technical founders who needed more help than ever and yet the venture ecosystem was really ill-suited to help. And so Amplify was really started to fill that gap. And so all we do is we work with really technical teams working across four or five of our key domains and we do everything in our power to make those entrepreneurs as successful as they can be from month zero to month say 36. Interesting. Yeah, I know we one of the things we had talked about um, you know in our in our year and wrap up show was we at least had had some sense that you know the the way early venture or sort of second round third round venture was was happening had been changing and it's uh it's it's good to kind of get some insight into you know what what changes early investing late investing and so forth so uh it, I appreciate the kind of the perspective on on what amplify does that's different from from other uh, other investors in this space because it's definitely something that I don't think we really understood but I think it was something that we were seeing from talking to certain startups or talking to companies who you know we had seen get an A round but then were you know telling us they were struggling to find a B or a C or something so uh appreciate the kind of the, the background and the insight. Absolutely. One of the things that that we noticed recently, you you wrote a piece recently called Infrastructure 3.0, uh, you know, with a focus on on AI and ML, and, and it's in the sh- you know the links in the show notes. But we're curious. So you you sort of laid out a premise of how the world's been evolving, both from an application perspective and infrastructure perspective, where they had kind of been in lockstep in terms of, of innovation, and and you you throw out this premise that, that that lockstep is really changing. Can you give us a sense of you know how we got here, and then and then kind of set up the the premise of, of where you think this stuff's going or how it's evolving? Yeah. So I think I think it's really important to note that a lot of these trends that take off, they don't happen in a vacuum. And I'm sure you guys have heard the saying, you know, t- history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Well, I think if you follow the history of technology and you chart the course of how the tech stack has evolved, I think it, it more than rhymes. I think it really, it comes really close to repeating itself. And so, you know, you could chart the trajectory or how the evolution really by paying attention to what's happening, you know, at the interface layer, how we're consuming applications and technology at the actual application layer 
layer and then the infrastructure layer. And so if you bear with me, uh, ha- happy to walk through at least my uh, rudimentary theory of where we've come from. And, and I think it sets out a pretty, a pretty interesting path where you could you know, where you could start to see what the next cycle might look like and, and perhaps even where opportunities lie. So, you know, initially going way back to this you know, 60s, 70s and 80s, we had these mainframes. They were vertically integrated giant computers. They were you know, generally interacted with or through terminals. And they were really good for kind of really big calculations and some rudimentary back office applications. Um, and, you know, at most these people, these systems really affected or were used by you know, thousands or tens of thousands of people. And then you had, you know, the OS was kind of disentangled from the mainframe and then came the PC revolution. Killer app really became business productivity, you know, the, the spreadsheets and Word docs and PowerPoints that we all still use today. And those really empowered, you know, millions of consumers and millions of business users. And, and that really gave birth to the client server architecture that dominated the enterprise uh, really until the, the mid aughts. And if we think about those technologies, principally, you know, you have the, the standard PC operating system windows, the x86 instruction set from Intel, you know, land switching from Cisco, the Oracle relational database, like the commercial internet really grew up on these technologies and, and the web scale giants that we think of today, right? They, in fact, I think they still use a bunch of these technologies, right? I think Salesforce is still the largest customer of Oracle or something like that. So as the com- commercial internet grew, right, we, we, we were able to, and really expanded because of the advent of things like the iPhone, the mobile interface, and the, the, the dominant application uh, really was a social application. The internet ballooned, uh, the requirements of applications really morphed. And so that necessitated a rethink of, of infrastructure. Um, and so that really precipitated the cloud infrastructure that we know and love today. And so, you know, that's that gave us things like Linux and Hadoop, Arc and Mongo, and more recently things like Docker and Kubernetes and CockroachDB and, and so on and so on. You know, but if you think about what these technologies do really, really well, um, they're really, really good at distributing applications to billions of users and then storing information about those users or about the interactions of those users really efficiently. And right, so what they're not necessarily good at is you know, high-performance analytics or uh, storing in, uh, storing information about those users and their interactions. And so what the cloud really gave us then was, you know, this kind of elastic source of compute and storage, and then call it in 2012 with some real innovations in algorithms, principally around deep learning, we were able to sort of walk into or saunter into the age of machine learning that's kind of in front of us today. And so that's 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 sort of where we are, right? We're, we're, we're on the downward slope of the cloud curve, but we're rapidly entering this new world of, you know, what, what we can call intelligent pervasive compute and right and in this world the new interfaces aren't just laptops or mobile devices they're all sorts of connected devices they're numbering in the tens of billions and all these devices are quote unquote smart right and so to me right like this shift is is, is perhaps more radical than any anyone that we've ever seen because not only are we dealing with fundamentally new application architecture but computation is going to be all all around us it's not going to be done on the client it's not going to be done in the cloud it's going to be everywhere and what this practically means is that there's going to be a, an exponential growth in the capability or there will have to be an exponential growth in the capabilities of infrastructure technologies of processing of the network of, of storage of data management and so on and so again if we rethink back to previous cycles we've had a new stack and a new reference architecture emerge every one of those cycles and new and new winners emerged and so I get a chuckle when I hear folks talk about how infrastructure is dead and so you know maybe maybe cloud infrastructure has kind of come and gone but I think the the opportunities in front of us are 
are as exciting as ever. And I think we've we've sort of scratched the surface of that a little bit on some of our shows. I mean, we obviously we, we've been you know having these conversations where uh, you know we, we've had people come on that talk about you know voice as a as a new interface, new new experience. Um, you know the the expectation that people have, regardless of you know what computing device that you're interacting with, uh, whether it's a you know phone, a laptop, a kiosk, a, a voice thing in your car, wherever, like you expect computing to be everywhere. You also expect it to be sort of instantaneous in its response to you. And and we've we've kind of loosely joked around with this idea that you know you can't really define what what things like AI and ML are anymore because as soon as they become mainstream for what you expect, you you no longer think of them as as sort of this amazing thing and you you move on to it. So yeah, I I would agree with you. I think we're we're beginning to see what the sort of AI and ML technologies can do. And then you start to say, well, okay, um, you know the 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 infrastructure that they run on. Uh, you know, wasn't really designed for, you know, these, these kind of pipelines that were there, right? We, we've put them together, we kind of make them work, but, you know, they've never really been optimized. So I think where you're going with this is, you know, there is there is sort of a revolution coming in in what this new, you know, new infrastructure for these these kind of everywhere, all the time applications are going to look like. Yeah, no, look, that's exactly right. And uh, th- th- we're, we're, we're sort of in that, in that weird phase of that lockstep evolution where, you know, just like Facebook was built on, you know, traditional servers racked in their own, Sort of, or in Nicolo running MySQL, we're similarly building you know these these really data intensive AI centric applications on what what will be what, what I think will be deemed legacy building blocks. And again, I'm not I'm not going to be so bold as to say that clouds won't exist uh, or old programming paradigms won't exist, right? Like yeah, mainframes are still a billion dollar yeah, business yeah, for yeah. IBM. But I think there's just so much opportunity because we are in this kind of uh, evolutionary state, um, and just at the outsets of understanding the implications of. AI and what that means, not only for applications and broader society, but really what it means to to build these new kinds of computing systems. Right. You know, and, and I think when, when things are sort of early like this, it's, it's, it's useful to have some some common terminology, some frameworks that people can won't be exactly laid out, but but are you know something they they can go okay. I've heard that before. I want to dig into it. You use a you use kind of a, a set of terminology. You call it connectivity versus cognition. Can you give give us a sense of just you know what what does it mean those two things um, in terms of you know the the difference between one generation and the next? Yeah, sure. So I think uh, kind of the seminal piece that that inspired some of my thinking was actually written uh, last fall, maybe in November by by Andre Karpathy, who's uh, Tesla's director of AI. And he wrote a blog post titled Software 2.0, where he really talked about this difference in how we traditionally have uh, built software and how that's going to change in the in the AI world. And so I, 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 could, I could try to do it justice. Here we go. So, I mean, I, to me, the uh, fundamental difference before AI was that the way we program computers were, or the way programs ran were largely based off of rules or heuristics that a person would code into them, right? Mm-hmm. So we would hand code a program to perform a very specific task. There would be some known input. We would have a very specific behavior in mind, and there would be some known output. And that works just fine for regular programming. And I think that's going to be that's going to make a ton of sense for app, for many applications. And frankly, I think this for you know for a lion's share of, uh, of of programs, this will be far more efficient than leveraging AI. But with AI, right, the paradigm sort of inverted, where instead of telling a computer explicitly what to do we use we tell it we tell it to teach it to learn how to 
pick up patterns or understand or understand context or make a decision. And so the canonical example here is, you know, if we had to teach a computer how to identify a cat, if we did it the old way, we'd have to sort of go line by line, write thousands of rules to describe what a cat might look like, right? There's like, there, there's a whisker, it's typically this girth, it's this length. We have to think about pixel size. Then we have to think about edge cases. You know, this is a house cat versus a tiger versus a lion. And handwriting uh, handwriting a program like this could take, you know, could be thousands of thousands of lines of code and can take many engineering man months. With AI, and particularly with deep learning, what we're doing is we're taking a training algorithm, typically a large neural network, and then we're feeding that network huge amounts of data until the program itself can develop a model and can learn a model of what a cat does or doesn't look like. And then we can implement that model into a larger system, and that serves as the core business logic. Right. So, right, in, in this case, we've got algorithms and data that together that are that are responsible for writing this logic and humans are really playing a supporting role right they're tuning the algorithms uh and then they're creating the data pipelines that are feeding the algorithms um and then they're redeploying the model and so over time i, I suspect we'll start to see more software writ written like this mm -hmm. um you know we've got a company in our portfolio that is that is working on a on a really uh exciting new uh area of research called code synthesis um these guys are taking plain text and they're spitting out code um the founders often joke that you know if they're successful they'll have success they'll have innovated their way out of a job sure um but, but yeah this sort of this 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 hits on a bunch of this this hits on really the, the the core premise of just how different this this programming model really is right right and you know and i, and I think you you sort of highlight right it's 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 a model that and, and you've got some diagrams of it so neither one of us are going to do it justice you know kind of talk through it it's it's worth um taking a look at the the diagrams and the link you do a good job of kind of laying out the pieces of this there there are a lot of pieces that go into you know, collecting the data, you know, getting it cleaned in certain ways, you know, not having to clean it in other ways, modeling it, um, you know, actually doing the computation is is only one small piece of this. You know, as you're as you're thinking about this, you know, give us some give us some sense, right? So some of these things kind of happen today, right? Uh, you know, I, I can do mm -hmm. pipelining in in AWS service or Google service or Microsoft service. Um, you know, we're seeing things like GPUs happen. People, you know, people are kind of cognizant of that being, you know, one of the building blocks. Give us a sense of you know what are as as people are watching this evolve and and. You know, a lot of times when there's big uh, ideas thrown out there, they're like, okay, cool. I know that's going to take a long time. You know, w when do I think I'm going to start seeing some things? W what are some of the f the next building blocks for people to look at to go, oh, okay, cool. We're moving into that next phase of things, right? Is it, you know, yeah. are you seeing things in your portfolio on the horizon or is it um, just, you know, the price point of a GPU or what, what are some of those things for people to look for? Yeah, so it's it, it's interesting. I think the the first the first point in time where it dawned on me that this was something completely different and truly disruptive was the fact that we about a couple of years ago we started seeing a resurgence in actual systems uh, and semiconductor companies. And part of that is really related to the fact that you know AI is kind of a, a represents a, a wholly new architecture that is really computationally expensive and it's really data intensive. And so you know if we talk about you know traditional kind of general purpose compute architectures, they have you know memory hierarchies that were really well suited for you know kind of traditional traditional computing as we think of it. Just they're really good for a bunch of horizontal applications and it's worked really really well. Again, in a sense where these applications are um, kind of logic constrained and not and not data constrained but with ml 
uh, as we talked about, the, that programming model becomes inverted because it's so data centric. And so what's really happening on the chip is you've got these super, super dense linear algebra operations. And often, you know, we're, we're dealing with gigantic models with millions of parameters. And the, the name of the game there is you want to really move uh, limit movement from, uh, you know, memory register to processor and back again. And so what that really what these architectures really lend themselves to is actually a, a, date, a more of a data flow model where you're, you know, where you've got a ton of uh a ton of computing cores with high bandwidth memory right on the die. And so we're seeing, we uh, appropriately, you know, we've seen a huge resurgence in the, num- in the number of chip companies because, you know, the Von Neumann, mo- the Von, the Von Neumann architecture that we know, right, has been around since the 1940s, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of dominated the computing landscape. But I think now, be- because of the sort of inherent characteristics of, you know, these data-centric applications, we've got an opportunity to, to kind of, you know, just dis- uh, to kind of uh, overthrow that, or not overthrow, but complement that with with a with a system that uh, that's really well suited and is purpose built for data centric applications. So that's that's one right. And we've seen we've seen a ton of activity uh, in this area. We uh, you know we we haven't placed any you know we haven't made any investment investments in this area. I think it. And then you work your way up the stack. Um, Right, I think there's a new framework that's that's come around, a, a new deep learning or ML framework that's coming coming online every week. Um, I think people are continuing to, to innovate there, and I think that's fantastic. The more tooling, the more approachable it gets, uh, the better. The more, the more uh, I think, the faster we'll we'll be able to innovate and make it more widespread. Another really interesting area that we've been paying attention to, and I don't think there's a there's not really a company out there yet, but if you think about what Spark really did to unleash uh, traditional big data and predictive analytics. Spark isn't necessarily the best suited uh, processing framework or substrate for ML, just because it's really sort of hyper optimized for you know, blocking MapReduce workloads, um, and so it's not you know it's again it's not necessarily the ideal you know, sort of multi dimensional data flow architecture that you're looking for. Um, but there's really interesting research happening at UC Berkeley uh, in the Rise Lab and at Stanford's uh, Dawn project that are thinking about you know these new computing and, and uh, these new computing substrates for deep learning. And I think yeah, there's certainly an opportunity to build another you know. Databricks or Cloudera that's that's optimized for uh, for the ML world. Right, right. Let me let me ask you one last question, just to kind of um, you know for help folks get some perspective into into how especially early stage venture thinks about um, you know timelines and so forth. So you know you talked about Datadog early on. Um, you know we we've always kind of followed this this thing where you know there's a lot of there's a lot of cool companies out there. Datadog being one of them that that makes technology that's going to help applications that are in the cloud. And then and then every every November comes along and, and we listen to the rein, reinvent uh, announcements and we and we go, "Oh, I, I wonder if they're going to announce a service that sounds like such and such, right?" Mm-hmm. And and Datadog right. Datadog being one of those companies that's, you know, continue to innovate, stayed ahead of, you know, some native service that in Amazon. As you're thinking about this from a from an AI perspective, right? You know, software companies, how do you how do you look at the the time horizon to help, you know, to to look at what your potential companies are, your portfolio companies, and say, like, how far ahead do they need to stay ahead of kind of the baseline of what an Amazon or a Google might bring in, in this type of space? Is that, is that something that you consciously go through? Or are you mostly saying, look, we're, we want to get you going for the first 
two or three years or something. Is, I mean, is, is that a thought yeah, process that goes on? It definitely is. And I think if you are competing uh, along one of the kind of traditional three axes of, of technology of better, faster, cheaper, mm-hmm. and you're on the application's critical path, uh, you're, you're going to be hosed. Um, I think that when we think about new technologies or new companies specifically, right, technology sort of table stakes. But the moment you start prioritizing that, uh, you know, to, to most end users or developers even, it's, it's an implementation detail. And to me, you know, you point to companies that have emerged over the last over the last decade. Uh, what they're really good at is finding a way to build brand and resonate with their end users and build you know, strong communities and really think about, you know, we think about them in terms of enabling real behavior change. Um, and once you, you, you know, ingratiate yourself to specifically to developers and, and show them what's possible, those brands and communities are really sticky. And coincidentally, it's what Amazon does really poorly, right? Mm-hmm. Like they are at the end of the day, sort of rote building block, um, you know, and so, you know, we've seen a bunch of companies uh, emerge that, you know, maybe do have a technological advantage uh, over the over the six or 12 months, but then they use that techno- technological advantage to drive, to drive, to drive, I, I don't want to say brand because it sounds so consumery, but to drive, to drive developers to their, to their kind of, to their way of doing things, yeah. right? Uh, and so that's, that's primarily what we look for. What, what new behaviors do you, do you enable? What new applications do you, do you allow me to build? How do I actually get get stuck in your workflow? How do I become a tool that you use every day? Uh, those companies stand the test of time, and I could rattle off you know dozens of those that have that have uh, outcompeted uh, or sort of outshined Amazon, despite Amazon having similar services. Right, right, absolutely. No, and it makes a lot of sense. It's you you always want to be not just a technology. You want to be something that people, they want to be associated with. They want to see continue to do better. You want them to feel like, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of tied into what you're doing. Your success is their success and their success is your success. So, um, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. Makes, makes a ton of sense real quick before you go. Um, give us a couple of, a uh, couple of names of, of portfolio companies that, you know, that you're working with that people might want to go, um, you know, go, go learn a little about, it, even if it's not in the, the AI ML space. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'd love to, I think, uh, part of the challenge of, of investing so early is that most of these companies haven't, uh, no, still- taken the covers off what they're doing. So okay. I, there's a, there's a couple names I'd love to share with you. Maybe we could we could do this in a year where I could talk about them. Uh, a few companies that launched recently um, that are I think most folks that that listen to the show will be well aware of. Obviously, we're we were the first investors in a company called Gremlin. Um, Gremlin oh, yeah. was founded by two guys who ran uh, Amazon's and Netflix's chaos engineering team, um, yeah. and they're really the one company that's holding the, the you know it's kind of holding the torch. Uh, as far as making chaos engineering uh, something as ubiquitous as integration testing, and so the thesis there is, you know, if, as as applications become components and you're relying more uh, as componentized and you're relying more and more on third-party software, uh, you've got this insane call graph and dependency chain um, where if one service go da- goes down, um, your application's down, and so we saw this with. Amazon's S3 outage and on and on and on. And so what these guys do is they give you a toolkit um, and and, a, and kind of a, a framework for injecting failure into your production systems uh, and watching services degrade or fail. And so in that way, you know, they, they uh, Colton, the CEO, would say it's, it's kind of like a vaccine where, you know, you watch these things cascade, you watch these failure scenarios cascade to your system. And that way you can build stronger systems. You can build resilient systems. And, you know, one of their great demos is, you know, they've simulated the S3 outage from, what was it? I think last, was it last spring? Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see how by building systems the right way, you, your application will be totally immune to an outage like that. So that's, that's one. Um, I think another, another exciting company is, uh, is replicated. So these guys, uh, 
provide you a toolkit to uh, provide a toolkit to not only run your software on prem um, for so any 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 sort of multi tenant SaaS provider they provide you with uh, kind of a, a you know a set of tools and 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 uh, a set of tools and libraries to allow you to deliver that offering to customers who prefer to have it on prem but also have a bunch of other libraries that allow you to do things like audit logging and access management and rolling updates and basically everything you need to run your your software as it to basically deliver the same experience you would if you were running a uh, your application SaaS on prem um, and so we're seeing a bunch of bunch of companies actually in the dev tool space this is really resonating with um so very cool, um, very cool. Yeah. and yeah we had the we had the gremlin guys on uh on episode 299 so folks want to go back and, and listen and dig into that one a little bit more if uh if you check out uh yeah show 299 we had uh, gremlin and uh andrus was uh was on and uh kind of early days but uh, yeah very very cool stuff around chaos engineering listen lenny I, I know you're busy um i want to appreciate the time today and uh digging into stuff folks if you if you want to learn about lenny's stealth companies you might have to buy him a beer somewhere catch him in uh, san francisco but um listen we'll have to have you back on again uh you know six months uh, or so kind of get an update on what's going on we'll we'll figure out if your if your premise is is making progress but uh, it was great to finally have you on and uh, we appreciate uh, we appreciate the time today yeah thanks so much brian this was uh, this was fun and always happy to come on yep well listen for uh, for aaron and for lenny folks thanks for listening this week and we will talk to you next week thank you for listening to the cloudcast please visit thecloudcast.net to find more podcasts show notes and everything social media and visit acloud.guru for all your cloud training needs